This is Cliff Dogs Podcasts, where Dr. Cliff Harvey chats with cool people doing interesting things in performance, business, health, and the creative arts. All right, welcome Dr. Anita Amorim and Emma Ho from the University of Sydney, uh, where you guys are doing some, some really interesting research on chronic pain, low back pain, and health coaching. Uh, Anita, first up, I'll get a bit of your background and you know where you've come from and how you ended up in this particular line of research. Yeah, so I'm a lecturer in physiotherapy and an early career researcher here at the University of Sydney. I did my physiotherapy undergraduate degree back in Brazil, where I'm originally from. And after I graduated, I worked there as a musculoskeletal physio for a couple of years. And then I came to Australia to do my PhD at the University of Sydney. So as um, physio and, you know, my personality is I've always been a quite inquisitive, um, inquisitive person. So always asking lots of questions. And as a musculoskeletal physio, I saw a lot of patients with back pain. And yeah. at uni, <laughs> I learned that the number one recommendation for people with back pain is to stay active. And research shows that the quicker they go back to work or resume their usual activities, the better the prognosis. And that is generally consistent guideline recommendation uh, worldwide. But I was very intrigued by this recommendation. Um, firstly, it doesn't address the types and intensities of physical activity that people should be encouraged to do, um, you know, when they have back pain. Um, secondly, just telling people to stay active does not necessarily mean that we will engage in physical activity. As we know, mm. changing behavior is very challenging. And thirdly, um, I was curious to know if there were other factors that might influence this relationship between back pain and physical activity. So these questions kept me awake for a few nights. So I decided to move to Australia to pursue a PhD to answer those questions. So in brief, during my PhD, I explore the relationship between physical activity and chronic low back pain and the role of health coaching to facilitate behavior change. Awesome. And Emma, you, you also come from a physio background, right? I do come from a physio background. Actually, um, I'm not sure if Anita remembers, but I was a student of hers much long time ago. Um, and yeah, so basically I studied uh, physiotherapy as an undergrad and then I went on to actually work in acute care hospital settings um, and eventually I pivoted to some outpatient musculoskeletal physiotherapy and that's where I saw a lot more chronic uh, musculoskeletal pain conditions and um, that's kind of led me to turn to a researcher. So I started my PhD a couple of years ago. I'm about two weeks out from submitting my thesis and um, I've been looking at lifestyle interventions to support people with chronic uh, non-specific low back pain. So um, one of the outcomes that I'm particularly interested in is looking at healthcare utilization patterns in people with back pain um, and that's where my research has led to. So there's a mixture of looking at the relationship between physical activity and whether people will seek um, more or less care for back pain, what types of care they'll seek. Um, I've had a look at psychological interventions for back pain as well and um, one of the projects that uh, Nita and I are working on today which is looking at health coaching to uh, help reduce healthcare utilization for this population as well. And personally, I, I fell into this project, I would say. Um, I worked with Anita when I was uh, an undergrad as well. And then some of the fabulous work that Anita's done has actually led on to the project that has formed part of my PhD. So um, yeah, certainly looking at ways where we can empower people with back pain to um, achieve you know, positive behavior change, to, to be more physically active and ultimately do things that they love to do in life. That's awesome. So, I mean, first up, congrats on getting that thesis completed. I know that's <laughs> such a such a big thing. Um, th this is such a, an important area, I think, and one of the reasons I was really interested in the research you guys are doing is that you know chronic back pain, or well, chronic pain, full stop, but particularly chronic low back pain is so prevalent in society. And from what I've seen in the research, at least, the the etiology of chronic back pain is very unclear. You know, obviously we can see that if you have an injury, you're going to have pain. But once we get past that point, that sort of acute phase, and we're looking at chronic back pain, whether that's chronic intractable back pain long term, or whether that is sort of transient back pain that springs up from time to time, which appears idiopathic, there doesn't really seem to be a lot of association with pathology of the spine per se. But there does seem to be some interesting associations with psychosocial stuff. 
So what have you guys, have you looked into to that side of things and, and, and what are your impressions of that picture of back pain at the moment? Yeah, so I think you explained really well, Cliff. That's what research shows so far, that um, chronic low back pain, it's a complex um, issue that's, um, that's a, it's a multifactorial condition. So there's yeah. a number of different factors that play a role in that condition, particularly when it becomes chronic. And there's a big influence on psychosocial factors on that. Um, and this is well known in the literature. And even though people have been talking about the biopsychosocial framework of chronic pain, uh, you still see a lot of biomedical approach to, to chronic pain and especially chronic back pain. So a lot of people trying to fix with, um, you know, biomedical um, approaches and referring to imaging, the use of opioids or sort of trying to get a quick fix to get rid of the pain. And it's not going anywhere. Like research shows that the prevalence of back pain and the burden of this condition continues to increase over time. Um, and I think uh, what I see is that there is still a huge evidence practice gap in implementing the um, psychosocial part of that framework into mm. practice. Um, and from what I've seen in my research and my clinical experience as well is that um, you need to look at the patient as a whole. So you need to take into account the social history. And that's very important. And I still think that's not well done in clinical practice in most places. I think it has improved massively over time. Um, but there's still a lot of scope to, to improve. And um, I think that looking at that holistic view and, and trying to really um, tackle those multifactorial, those multifactors, mm. you know, and that we know now that influence um, the pain experience. I think that's the best way to go. And even though in my PhD, I focused a lot in physical activity, I realized that that's not the only thing. Like we have to look into diet, we have to look into stress levels. And I think um, just focusing on the physical aspect of it, it's not, it's not the whole, it doesn't complete the picture you know I think we also need to, to look at how we can also take care of the mind and yeah mind and body and looking at all of those aspects so physical activity levels um, nutrition stress levels sleep patterns you know sleep quality so all of these are important social connections you know relationships yeah. all of these play a role in that um, pain chronic pain experience now I'm going to get tangential here for just a second before we get back on track I wonder, I'll, I'll relay this by way of analogy initially. You probably don't know, but uh, my early postgrad was in mind-body healthcare before I sort of swung back to nutrition to my master's and doctorate in nutrition. And through, you know, 25 odd years of clinical practice, I've done a lot of modality work around mind-body aspects of health. And one of the things I noticed working with a number of top athletes uh, here and in North America was that there seemed to be some weird things going on at times with, um, I guess, some psychological constructs that built up based on maybe past trauma and things like that, and how that was playing into both chronic pain and de debility. And so I, I started working with a number of physios, particularly in Canada, and these were very high-level physios with some top-level athletes. And it was really interesting how certain things that came from like I say, past trauma, when dealt with, not just by me, but by a combined team, including psychologists and things like that, there would be, you know, almost immediate release of these conditions. And I'll give you one other analogy. I used to be a weightlifter, right? Along with a, you know, grappler doing Brazilian, uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and catch wrestling and things like that. I've, I've sustained a number of back injuries. But even if I'm not in pain at any given time, so I know a lot about chronic back pain. But even if I'm not in, in pain at a time, I notice a weird thing. If I went to a weightlifting competition and I was watching people lift, my back would immediately get sore and my hips would start to seize up. And I do wonder if there are not just physically protective mechanisms going on, but also potentially mind-body protective mechanisms going on. Is there much research on that? Because I've looked and it seems like it's fairly washy. 
Um, yeah, I think, well, yeah, Emma, you can talk about your, because um, <laughs> I'm very interested in this topic, but you've just done a network analysis on that, so. Yeah, look, it, it's not a, it's a roundabout way to answer your question, but recently um, we finished a study which was just published in the BMJ, which was a network meta-analysis of psychological interventions for back pain. And um, Very cool. I started reading that. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, right. it's a big paper. So um, there was about 97 studies that we, uh, randomized controlled trials that we pulled together, um, and we looked at different types of psychological interventions. Um, splitting them into different categories. So, you know, based off cognitive behavioral therapy, behavioral therapy, pain education focused interventions, mindfulness, and then um, some combined approaches as well. And um, I think the bottom line is we compared that with physiotherapy care, uh, which we typically refer to as structured exercise. Um, and looking at whether there was the combinations of psychological interventions with exercise or just psychological interventions by themselves and how they compared with them. Um, you know, exercise or physiotherapy care on its own. And I think the bottom line is what we found is that um, the best outcomes were achieved for things like physical function and pain intensity and fear avoidance when you actually combined treatments for the body and the mind Mm. as well. And, um, you know, in the wake of the findings and um, speaking to people about, you know, what does this actually mean? I think the key message that we're trying to put out there is, look, when it comes to chronic pain and in this case, chronic back pain, what we're really seeing is treatments should address both the mind and the body, you know, that holistic approach to health. And I think coming back to the what you were discussing before, you know, I'm not sure how, um, you know, as the field evolves, um, certainly I think what we're trying to see or what we're understanding now is there's a connection. Um, you know, mm. when, we, when we think, when we feel pain, Either way, our thoughts and processes and our brain is involved in that. And so I think to separate them just um, doesn't quite, you know, tackle all the elements of what health really is. Yeah, I I agree 100%. I mean, when we look at the interrelated nature of even things like, I mean, anything, stress, media, sleep, eating control, uh, the desire for physical activity, and it's all obviously bi-directional, man, there's so much going on there. And, you know, just, just having had uh, challenges with chronic pain over the last sort of 15 years or so, particularly since I, you know, ostensibly retired from weightlifting, uh, I, I know for, from my own experience just how important every one of those facets is. So I guess with your research, you've tried to address that by having integrated programs. So Anita, I, I understand that your, or Emma, sorry, your research is built a little bit upon our previous work that Anita's done. Um, so Anita, in, in one of your studies, you um, conducted a pilot trial yeah. um, looking at sort of an integrated uh, approach to pain, including health coaching. So w- what was your hypothesis with that or, or what did you expect to see? Yeah, so um, we know that, that there is a benefit impact of engagement in leisure physical activity for people with chronic low back pain. So the research shows um, that people that engage in leisure physical activity um, have better prognosis in terms of pain, um, active activity limitation, quality of life. Um, but the problem is how do we get people to engage and maintain those active you know, activity levels? And mm. I've encountered that during my clinical practice on, um, as I said, just telling people to stay active wasn't wasn't really working or getting people to actually have been sedentary their whole life to become active was even harder so um, when i came to australia i um, was exposed a lot more into health coaching and i started diving into the research on health coaching and there was a lot of research back then to behavior change to um, other conditions not as much for chronic pain and they did the wellness coach in australia um course and then i thought well wow. this this might be the one that can help those people to really engage in physical activity hmm. because we know that changing behavior it's very difficult especially for people that you know have been living with chronic pain and as i said if those people haven't been exposed to um, exercise before physical activity um, which is a vast majority like a lot of people we see in especially in the public health system uh, people that haven't ever even exercise before they're really sedentary they have a number of comorbidities um, so it's quite challenging so the idea was to develop this um, approach based on active lifestyle behavior change for people with chronic low back pain using health coaching um, and mobile technology as well and 
um, there was we our approach was to get people after discharge from treatment so um, we were recruiting people from the public health system so they go into um, the wait list get into treatment do a, a normal five to six sessions of physiotherapy and then they are discharged and then when they are discharged the physios always recommend you know as peer guidelines that they should remain active or trying to increase the physical activity levels um, however, what we see is that after discharge, a lot of people go back to the waiting list and then that becomes a, you know, endless cycle. That's also a problem of, for the healthcare system. So mm. we do mm. see that a lot of patients have, as you know, have multiple flare ups and, um, they are likely to uh, seek additional care, go back to the waiting list, go back to the healthcare system. So the idea is like, how can we get these people after treatment to engage in an active lifestyle? Um, and is this going to make a change in terms of decreasing that healthcare seeking behavior? Uh, so that was, this, that, that was the plan. Um, back then, when we had this idea, it was 2014. Um, there was the first clinical trial investigating health coaching and mobile health for people with chronic back pain after treatment discharge. So this was a pilot study and we were mainly interested in the feasibility of this approach. Um, but we also wanted to look at the preliminary efficacy of this intervention on care-seeking behavior, pain levels, activity limitation, and physical activity levels. Um, we were mainly interested in you know, can we get these people to self-manage their condition and don't go and don't go back to the waiting list? Because, as I said, that's a big issue for the healthcare system as well. Um, so it was only a pilot study. We only included um, 68 people, uh, so we didn't have enough power to have strong um, findings in terms of the efficacy. But we yeah. did have, um, you know, good basis to say that this was a feasible approach. And um, the plan since the beginning was to um, take this to a, another level, which is basically what led to um, Emma's PhD and the, the big partnership trial that we're working on now. Great. So um, a couple of questions around that. Were, were the health coaches that we used registered health coaches or, you know, fully qualified health coaches or were they sort of more health advocates? Yeah. So no, the health coach did their wellness coach in Australia course as well. Um, and they were right. not, they did the um, course to be part of this study. So they were not very experienced, but they were physios. Um, right. Yeah. And, and they did, because I did that just because I was the lead investigator. So I wasn't providing health coaching, but I did. And I was like, okay, I think this is the, the, the ideal method. And I want the health coaches in this study to be um, doing, you know, uh, the, the more comprehensive and the one that has some evidence as well. And, is yeah. using the behavior change approach. So it was using goal setting, motivational interviewing, positive psychology. So pretty much following the wellness coaching, but we were focusing on, only on physical activity. Um, yeah. So we were not tackling the other aspects of, you know, a healthy right. lifestyle. Interesting. It's a, it's an important distinction, I think, for, for listeners to understand because, you know, if, if you went back 10 years or so, probably more, 10 or 15 years ago, I would have been admittedly a little bit dismissive of health coaching and that the only reason was that a lot of people at the time in New Zealand, Australia, who are calling themselves health coaches were basically nutritionists without qualifications, right? So they couldn't call themselves nutritionists. They called themselves health coaches. But, you know, as we know, um, having looked into that more and I've done some additional study in that area as well, it opens up the doors because health coaching, legitimate health coaching is completely different to that. It's obviously, as you mentioned, it's an evidence-based approach to behavior change, which is based on evidence from positive and behavioral psychology. So it's, it's really a different thing to just, you know, someone who's not quite qualified to get registered as something else. Um, and so I, I think for people listening, that is an important distinction because there's still a little bit of uh, confusion about that out in the marketplace. Now, I, I was interested in a couple of the things you mentioned around the, the the study itself, because when I looked at it, I, I was a little bit unsure about how meaningful you thought your results were, mainly because I understand the numbers were relatively limited, and you obviously didn't get you know statistical significance there with those confidence intervals overlapping one. But um, what would you have suspected was a reasonable number to have given you some some good power? Because sixty eight for a health study is still relatively large. 
Yeah, so again, that's really the, it depends on, on the power analysis. Um, so I can't yeah. tell you a number here. And because this was a, a fairly new area, there wouldn't have been extant research which you could really pull from for that power calculation, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, so as I said, there was, for this particular um, context, as we were including people after treatment and we we're looking at care-seeking behavior as a primary outcome, um, there was not nothing, you know, published so there were some studies looking at pain solely, but we're not interested mainly in pain levels because I think pain, you know, it's such a subjective experience and studies that are solely looking yeah. at pain reduction, it's just showing that there's so many factors that influence the pain experience. Like yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. not the, 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 my, my goal wasn't just looking at pain reduction. So I really wanted to see how can we help decreasing the burden of this condition to patients and the healthcare system. So that's why we're focusing healthcare um, seeking behavior. And so basically we're trying to see if we could help people to better self-manage the condition. Um, yeah. So so I don't like, uh, maybe Emma can talk about what's the power calculation they did for the bigger trial. And it's a, a lot larger, it's over 300 patients. Um, but because that was the first one and we were recruiting from um, host, public hospitals and we counted lots of challenges with that as well, um, I think it was very, uh, it, it was a, a very important study and it's been cited, you know, worldwide because as I said, it was the first one. Um, yeah. it, it was important findings, but as I said, I couldn't draw um, conclusions in terms of efficacy for patient reported outcomes. It's, um, this is why I love speaking with researchers because there's always a little bit more in terms of what you think is happening behind the scenes and what you can really see being an expert in the field with all those broad threads of research sort of coming into some sort of confluence around yours because if we're just reading the paper and we're just looking at the numbers we might easily say well there wasn't really much to see here but there's obviously a context to that and I find it really interesting that you know, that, that the comment that you weren't as concerned about the pain per se, because, and I'm paraphrasing here, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you're more interested in the sort of functional outcomes for that person rather than the very subjective pain outcome. But that links into a lot of the discussions I've had around pain. I'll give you one example. A, a, um, a friend of mine is a black belt in jiu-jitsu in Vancouver, Canada, where I used to live. Uh, I, I went up there for a holiday and he asked me about whether he should keep on training because he has chronic back pain. And I said, dude, I'm not an expert in that space, but I've done a little bit of reading around the research. You know, I've obviously done some mind-body study and I've had it myself. And I think you've probably, at the very worst, what will probably happen is if you keep training, you might be strong, fit, and in pain. Whereas if you don't train, you're going to be weak, unfit, and in pain. Right? And so I think there's so much more context to life than just focusing on the pain. One other thing, I know I'm, I'm rambling here. I've also read some interesting uh, case reports and this meshes with my personal experience where people realize that perhaps their pain is not just pathology. There seems to be a pretty marked reduction in the experience of pain anyway. And there is obviously that, you know, in the research, we can see that association between fear and particularly fear of pathology, fear of pain and low back pain. So there's, there's some interesting things going on there about how people can sort of view their pain. Yeah, so it, it's very interesting, and I, the research do show around health coaching and other mind-body um, approaches and psychological approaches that it leads to a, a pain reduction. But the thing is, for me, is like pain reduction shouldn't be the goal, but it's a, it's a mm. consequence of this approach. And when you focus too much of doing pain reduction as a goal, that's when sometimes you know it might not go as you expect. But when yeah. you're working on you know, your life as a whole and the meaning that that brings, you know, if you focus in everything, all of the other aspects of your life and not only the pain experience, then you're going to realize that perhaps, you know, that pain, is, it becomes a lot smaller for you. And then as a consequence, you feel a pain reduction because as I said, there's so many other things playing um, in your pain experience. So... Yeah. It's it's so cool. It's so cool that you guys are doing this research because, you know, one of the focus or folk, some of the foci that I've always had is around holism. But when I mention that 
to some ostensibly evidence-based people, they think I'm talking about scented candles and putting on a caftan and all that kind of stuff. Whereas what I'm really just talking about is the whole person in their whole environment. And obviously you guys are addressing that by talking about all these various things and not just sort of focusing on way down the rabbit hole pain. Um, I, I know you, you probably feel that you've been ignored a little bit, Emma, but that's because we're building the backstory here around your research. So you, you went on and did a much... Have you actually completed that RCT now? We or is that still prospective? Still recruiting participants for that, yeah. And there's probably been delayed due to COVID. I've had a yeah. bunch of projects cancelled <laughs> and delayed due to COVID as well. You've hit the nail on the head. <laughs> so this is going to be a much larger trial. And so you, you'd hope to, to have you know, bigger numbers to see, you know, if there are meaningful and significant results. So tell me a little bit about what um, your hypothesis is there and what you're expecting to see. Absolutely. I might just um, address the question before about the number of participants as well. So the impact pilot has provided provided extensive groundwork um, leading up to this trial, uh, which is led by Professor Paolo Ferreira, um, and he also led the impact as well. And um, essentially, you know, we were looking at the findings from the differences in care seeking that we found in Anita's trial, and then um, we used those numbers for the power calculation to look at a 30% a difference between groups in the main trial that we're running at the moment. And the outcome is um, the use of hospital, medical and health services for back pain. And um, it really does build on what Anita's work has shown, because we know that about one in five people after they have conservative treatment for back pain, you know, most improve, but one in five will actually experience worsening of symptoms and they'll come back and seek further health care. And um, the trial that we're running at the moment when we uh, put the grant through and we were funded, it was predominantly focused on the health, public health hospital setting. Um, and when we had discussions with um, some of the local health districts in Australia, in Sydney, um, and these are basically demographic regions where they service the public health um, community, hospital services for um, certain areas. Um, basically, we identified that in one year alone, uh, across four public hospitals, People with back pain who had been discharged from treatment and then came back, they accumulated about $750,000 worth of repeated healthcare use within one year alone. Um, And that's in four public hospitals. And so if you magnify this across New South Wales and then across Australia, certainly the costs escalate. And and this pattern is seen around the world as well um, with people returning for healthcare. And so um, from there, we spoke with some clinicians, um, some consumer representatives of back pain patients from these hospitals as well. And they essentially... Uh, we teased apart what, what is happening, you know, why are patients coming back? And um, one of the key driving factors was that there was a lack of support available after they discharged from hospital care. Um, and so what they felt like was they received this wonderful program while they were in hospital and then mm. treatment ended quite abruptly. Um, they didn't really know what services were out there, what were available. There was no coordinated approach, essentially. It's gone from I'm being treated in the hospital, got a physiotherapist looking after me, you know, every one week, every two weeks and so forth, and then going to just in the community and managing by myself. And um, so we're trying to bridge that gap essentially. Um, so what we've got is essentially we're recruiting patients from the public hospital setting um, at discharge from physiotherapy treatment, and then we randomize them to either the usual care that they would receive at discharge anyway, or the usual care plus uh, we're referring them to the Get Healthy service, which is a public health coaching service that's available in New South Wales and South Australia in Australia. Right. And, um, yeah. And so is that health coaching program, is that similar to the earlier study in that it's focused mostly on physical activity or solely on physical activity? So the Get Healthy service offers a variety of um, health coaching programs. Um, they have different streams, what they call their standard coaching, and um, they've also got other ones based off alcohol reduction, for example, or um, diet. They have health coaching focused on pregnancy support as well. Um, so what we are referring patients to is their standard coaching program. So uh, whilst they are able to have any health goals which they'd like to establish with the health coach, certainly for the trial, we know that physical activity is beneficial for people with back pain. So we've um, at least asked the health coaches to set at least a physical activity goal with them. Right. So that the health coaches, so it is going to be very individualized because there are individual health coaches giving exactly advice. Right. Interesting. Um, d- does that, I'm just putting on my sort of research methods hat here. 
having grappled with many of the same issues, does does that sort of muddy the waters to some degree, or is that just naturally going to be part of any integrated health you know process when you're individualizing for um, a, a patient? Certainly, and I think um, when it comes to individualizing treatment, it's always difficult to control, you know, the intervention yeah. that's happening. But I think that's also reflective of real life, isn't it? Because patients are different. Um, and if anything, you know, these interventions that are based on goal setting, you can't give them all the same goal and expect the same outcome. And I think the key thing that um, Anita and I have been discussing as well is with this trial, it's a partnership trial. And in Australia, the, the funding body is essentially looking at projects where we facilitate collaborations between stakeholders across different sectors. So in this particular study, we've got, you know, four academic institutions, we've got about 15 hospitals, hospitals um, across four health districts, um, the government, um, health department, and also obviously the Get Healthy Service, which is a, a public coaching service. And I think the key thing here is we're looking at linkage. These are existing services that exist. You've got hospital outpatient physio and you've got an established Get Healthy Service, but the link yeah. between them and how do patients access them isn't quite clear, you know, and I think that's what we're looking at. It's 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 a pathway essentially of you know, when they leave hospital, there's a service available and how do we actually get patients to engage in these services? And obviously part of that is finding out the uh, effectiveness and the cost effectiveness of, of that process. Yeah. Yeah, and I'd just like to add a quick thing here that was interesting when uh, we had this idea with when I was doing my PhD with the pilot study and I was going to the hospitals and speaking with clinicians and recruiting patients. That's when I started looking at and finding the Get Healthy service, which I wasn't aware before. And patients wasn't were not aware, and many clinicians were not aware either. So, um, in the first instance, as I said, we, we found many challenges. Is one of them was like getting access to a health coach is actually quite expensive. So, how can we make these available to people? And we know that those people, those patients that need the most, they are in, um, in, in going to the public health system. They wouldn't be able to afford and they might not have the, the knowledge of what health coach is. So when I found out about the Get Healthy service, that's one of the things that we were like, wow, maybe that could be a way to make this actually scalable. And and that led to the to the bigger project that um, Emma was talking about. So I think it was a fantastic way to try to make these available to more people because it's a free service already established and available to um, everyone in New South Wales and South Australia. It sounds like a fantastic, you know, innovation there because we've, I've been involved in chronic pain programs here in New Zealand, government run ones, and I don't want to speak out of class here, but they, they I will, who cares, they, um, they seemed a little bit disjointed and while they were trying to provide an integrative approach with you know myself for example as a clinical nutritionist with a physio and with a counselor or psychologist there didn't really seem to be enough crossover there between those practitioners or enough I guess shared ethos and understanding of what was really going on with chronic pain um, and, and perhaps how we could move forward in the best way so I wonder what what are your thoughts um, both of you about who is taking the lead there or who is the primary contact? Is it is it the physio as a lead or do you think it's really the health coach providing for that ongoing coaching as being a lead? I think in the um, the case of the Get Healthy, oh, the Get Back to Healthy study, which is the, the study that I'm describing at the moment, um, what we're finding is that actually getting the clinicians on board and understanding what the service is about is one of the key starting points to people actually becoming interested in the service. Um, not even talking about the randomised trial in itself, but obviously this is a... Um, currently established service that's available and even speaking with clinicians they do know that the service exists but I think it's it's the gap between actually linking the patient to the service um, there's it's two-pronged you know it, there's also um, the patient aspect you know where we can inform patients about the availability of these services but I think community understanding about health coaching as we've kind of talked about earlier in this conversation um, it's, it's still there's still a gap to fill um, in helping patients understand what health coaches can actually do and, and provide for um, in terms of their management um, I can't answer the other question in terms of whether it's a health coach um, approach direct a patient um, certainly with the service at least because this is a, a, a public health service right so do, do you do you think, I'm just exploring here, do you think there is potentially 
also a challenge in that I, I think you mentioned this briefly before Anita that a lot of and correct me if I'm wrong again but a lot of physios and medical doctors are still very much in that biomedical mold uh, in, in which they're they're going to always look to pathology and again I'll, I'll relay this by way of an analogy I remember when I was having a bunch of scans MRIs and x-rays and all sorts of things and did some functional testing with my surgeon and he said oh your your hamstrings are tight and so that could be you know the cause of your back pain and I said but dude my hamstrings weren't tight before I had back pain and he said yeah you're probably right <laughs> it's probably actually reverse causation kind of thing so do you think we, we unfortunately default to the pathology uh, I think a lot of clinicians still do, um, especially the ones, um, maybe I could be wrong, but the ones that have been trained um, many years ago. I see like in, as a, a lecturer and a teacher, I'm in the classroom, we've, we've been educating our undergraduate and master's students, at least here at the University of Sydney, of the complex nature of chronic back pain and the multifactorial, you know, nature and how all of those things are actually more important than looking for a mechanical um, issue that you can quickly fix. So it, that's been changing. In terms of clinical practice, you still see a lot of um, clinicians is still focusing a lot in the biomechanical and biomedical approach and trying to um, find a particular structure that they can fix. Um, I see sometimes, um, and I could be wrong here, but, um, and again, I'm not generalizing, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, it's just maybe a small proportion of clinicians as to do that, but they try to get your patient to keep coming back to your clinic because of course you're the owner of your business, right? And then always like, you need to depend on, become a, like a dependent of that passive treatment um, because mm. they, they sort of keep re re-emphasizing to the patient that there is something wrong in the structure in the body that they need to come and see you so you can help fix and you have that ongoing um, ongoing treatment whereas uh, from what research is showing there is so much more to play in that um, picture that the, the best approach is actually you know getting people to learn how to um, identify those triggers, what, how to do when they have those triggers, you know, how to better self-manage um, and then avoid them actually becoming um, dependent on those passive therapies. And so there's plenty of research mm. to show that active therapies and people that actually start understanding all of those aspects, um, they do better in the long run. They have a better quality of life. Uh, even if they still have some level of pain, um, it, they learn how to cope with pain and what's more important is that they actually um, are able to go back to engage in the meaningful activities wh whether they're going out with friends or family engaging in the, in the physical activity that they really enjoy you know um, yeah. then, then becoming you know like um, not addicted but like becoming um, a slave of that passive treatment you know what I mean <laughs> yeah it's, a, it's an interesting tangent you bring up I, I remember you know in, in looking into various modality work around mind-body um, medicine through the years one thing we used to talk about a lot and it sounds a little bit woo but I still think there's some sort of justification for it is this idea of the treasured wound right you know why why do we hold on to chronic pain well there's ho a whole bunch of reasons some physiological some more psychological but of course those are all deeply entwined there's really no separation but one thing that we had thought could be playing a role is perhaps that people get some service from the pain and so in working with chronic pain programs I wondered sometimes about that sort of I know you didn't mean to say it but that sort of addiction to the care to the treatment to the you know appreciation and, and comfort companionship that you might get from your clinicians um, and so obviously it's something that is not proven, but it's certainly an interesting tangent that I think, um, you know, has not really been well addressed. And, and perhaps with a, a better system that you guys are researching now, we might be able to help free people from that, that sort of pattern. 
Absolutely. Even with the Get Healthy service, um, with the health coaching, they run it on a tapered schedule as well, which is according to the patient's preference. And I think, you know, what I alluded to earlier was this abrupt discharge. I think that's when patients feel really lost in the system. They're, yeah. got, they've received this care, they've received this wonderful connection with this therapist, and then suddenly it's gone. And, and what, what do I do? And, and how do I negotiate that? And some people are very lucky to have social support. And some people have different circumstances. And I think we're trying to almost figure out the gap between as well. Um, and the other aspect of it is I think, you know, when we're talking about um, people receiving treatment and then um, the reliance on care as well, I think what we're really working with in a lot of our program of research is empowering patients to develop skills to negotiate those challenges. Mm. Um, and so that even when they are, you know, um, I say alone, but with you know living within the community, you know they ha- they actually have the tools that they've developed either from the physical activity side of things or from the behaviour change um, interventions where they're understanding how to negotiate the demands of every day as well. And um, just coming back to that biomedical question as well, just made me think. Um, certainly, research conducted by other groups, but um, speaking strictly about physiotherapy, there's this perception by physiotherapists that they lack the confidence to address these psychosocial elements as well like they certainly acknowledge it's there but um, there's this perception that it's outside their scope of practice you know that that's for a psychologist to address and I'm, I'm trained mostly in the biomedical approach and so those are the skills that I have but um, yeah. it's, it's not new I think even in the last decade or so the idea of psychologically informed practice where um, people borrow or, or physios or exercise clinicians and so forth are borrowing skills from other other um, professions to, to essentially incorporate those strategies together. Um, I think what we're coming down to at the end is this holistic approach of, of meeting patient needs. And I'd just like to add a bit from that as well, Emma. Like, as I said, being a, a lecturer, um, you know, being in the forefront of educating those healthcare professions, we're still trying to do a better job in how can we um, better upskill physiotherapists to deal with this. And we, we're not there yet I think there's a lot of work to be done in that space so um, I think it's um, also a a part of we have to better incorporate as part of the training and this is not to say that we're gonna you know steal what psychologists are doing no not at all I think we just need to be better prepared to have those sort of conversations and one of the things um, that I have a colleague of mine that's doing a fantastic work on uh, dealing with uncertainty in low back pain Um, and that's another reason why a lot of um, clinicians and patients um, are seeking to um, get an answer or diagnosis or even if they have like a structure to blame for that pain. And what research shows in the chronic back pain space, sometimes we don't. We don't have that structure to blame. You know what I mean? And it can be very difficult or frustrating for patients to understand that. So you need to spend more time talking to patients um, of the explaining the nature of back pain and and um, pain experience and a lot of clinicians especially like gps or, or doctors which only have five you know to 15 like let's say 15 minutes with the patient they don't have enough time to um, dive into that to help patients understand a bit better so in that um, time constraint some sort of environment where patients are desperate because they're in pain they're trying to figure out what's causing the pain um, that's when sometimes you know the clinician just okay i'll just um, send you to a scan or I'll just give you some opioids or you know what I mean because they don't have enough time to deal with that uncertainty and explain and it can be challenging for both um, patients and clinicians to understand that uncertainty uh, regarding chronic back pain so yeah so Dr. Natalia Costa is doing a fantastic work on that space and hopefully we'll have better answers um, soonish that's a, yeah, that's really interesting. And I wonder if, well, I don't wonder, I know that that's driving a lot of the uptake of, particularly in New Zealand, of health coaches into primary health organisations, because the doctors simply don't have time to, to really get into the weeds with the client, whereas the health coach can spend a bit more time and address other things that are sort of outside the direct pathology. So um, certainly an interesting area. Now, I imagine that... Um, you're obviously going to go on and, and continue your research, Emma, because you're nearly done with your PhD, but the, the RCT, the big RCT, hasn't been done yet. So that that's going to be the focus for the next little while, I imagine? 
you're exactly right. I think he'll be the focus for a long time, um, only because the way that COVID's derailed the trial a little bit, but we've certainly made a lot of progress. So um, something that I didn't touch on earlier was um, we were initially focusing on patients who had been discharged from public hospital care. But I think with COVID, we've seen that, I mean, in Australia, we weren't allowed to leave the house um, for unless it was for, you know, special medical treatment and so forth um, for quite a long period of time during lockdown. And, you know, there were definitely patients at home who um, weren't able to seek the healthcare professionals and experiencing worsening of their symptoms. And that's certainly something that we've we've seen in conversations with consumers as well. And so um, there's a gap that needs to be filled. And we've now expanded recruitment to the general community as well, who's... Um, all right. Yeah, that's right. From one aspect, obviously, when you're running a trial, there's unexpected elements that need to happen as well. But um, we, once we opened recruitment to the general community, we actually had a rapid increase in the amount of people coming through into the trial who were interested. So uh, I think to me yeah. that just that's a it's an indicator that there's there's space. Um, there's there's a gap, I should say, um, that needs to be filled. And as I'm working on this in parallel um, in our research group, we're also looking at you know. Health coaching certainly um, is a wonderful uh, approach for certain populations, but some people might like different approaches. You know, there's work in the yeah. dance field, for example, in the arts field, and, um, you know, we're, lo- we're looking at different ways that we can best support people that I think targeting their interests and their needs, combining that together is often when we get the most beneficial approach, uh, beneficial outcomes. So, um, Anita, where do you see this research going for you? Are there any uh, sort of tangents you're going off into or any different areas you're going to begin to look at? Yes. So since I finished my PhD, as I said, I became more and more uh, interested in not only the physical aspect, you know, of of a lifestyle that influences the the pain experience, but also um, how the the mind um, play a role in that as well. So my research now is going to the use of mindfulness for people with chronic musculoskeletal pain. So I'm not only looking at chronic back pain, but chronic musculoskeletal conditions as a whole. So I'm at the moment leading a a pilot clinical trial of getting people um, out of a wait list of a pain clinic at um, RPA hospital here in Sydney and offering them this mindfulness-based stress reduction approach um, for people with chronic musculoskeletal pain. So the mindfulness-based stress reduction course, a program, it's an eight-week program that has been developed in the 80s by John Kabat-Zinn, and there's a lot of yep. research things on that. So it's an evidence-based approach. is recommended in guidelines um, in the U.S. Um, it's mentioned in a lot of um, guideline recommendations in Australia as well, but it's not as well... Um, implemented in Australia as it is in the US or in the UK. So again, I'm trying to see how we can actually make this approach available to people that can't afford to pay the program, which is can be quite expensive. Um, and since COVID, the um, mindfulness-based trust reduction course have been offered online. And um, a lot of the problem with people in the public health system is um, lack to access to services. Um, so we are trying these approaches. It's an online program for people with chronic musculoskeletal pain, part of the public health system. So again, it's a pilot study. It's a pilot implementation study. So as I said, we already have a lot of evidence to show that um, MBSI is effective for reducing um, pain um, and increasing quality of life with people with, with chronic pain, different conditions, um, including chronic back pain. So there's a large trial published at JAMA um, by Dan Charkin that showed that um, MBSR is effective for people with chronic back pain. So we're now trying to tackle the issue, how can we implement this as part of the public health systems? Like how can we actually make this accessible for more people, people that can't afford to pay, you know, the course out of their own pocket. That's great. And is mindfulness something that you've had some experience with before or is that something that you've sort of come across as a result of your research? I came uh, as a personal experience, so I um, have been interested in meditation for a while, but then I found the MBSR program during COVID, and I just thought that was an amazing resource that I like the because it's quite secular so it's um, it's based on evidence you know doing the program you learn 
the effect of that practices on your brain and your body. It's not only sitting and meditating. There is a, a large component of understanding your patterns of thinking and thoughts, uh, body awareness, some yoga as well. So there's movement in as part of the program as well. And it's, it's very secular, so there's nothing, um, you know, about spirituality or, or religion in, in there. It's quite a – it was developed at the university, you know, in a medical school, and yeah. there is this approach where, which I, I, I value as well. And, and because there is lots of research on that space and they, it's evidence, that's why I decided to choose that approach. But I do find that there's a lot of other mind – types of, of mind training that can be quite effective as well for people with um, with chronic pain. Is, is that something that you're also going to be looking into, Emma? Look, I'm certainly, I'm loving this conversation because I'm just getting all these ideas of things that I'll do after the two <laughs> weeks when I submit my thesis. But yeah, look, absolutely. Anita and I have been talking about this um, as well. We're looking at ways that we can continue working together on different projects. I think what, um, you know, the bottom line is, it looks like there's lots of different options out there and we need to kind of understand how we can actually link people to services that, you know, we have been shown to be effective. Um, and I mean, in Australia, I think, don't quote me on this, but I think it's about 50% of people are um, only have, so 50% of people are publicly funded in a sense. They don't have private health insurance. And so how do we address that gap as well? Mm. You know, where a lot of health resources that are wonderful also cost a lot of money for some people. And, you know, it's a, it's a whole package of, of reducing overuse of care, but also, you know, meeting the needs of people who don't have access to care as well. Yeah. And I, I knew you alluded to that before, Anita. Um, and when we would sort of categorize that, I guess, as a, a lot of the things that aren't just embedded in the mainstream that might be seen as complementary or complementary is probably the best word because if they're evidence-based, they're not alternative per se. Those are generally the domain of the worried well, because those are the people who can afford it. And so we see a lot of people slipping through the cracks who would benefit from things like MBSR and like, you know, these integrated health coaching programs that simply don't have access to it. So, I mean, you guys are doing fantastic work. Um, your, your research is super interesting and I, I can't wait to see what you come up with. Uh, thanks for chatting with me for the last hour. I've really enjoyed it. Thank so you, Cliff. Thank you. And I really enjoyed the chat. Yeah, it was amazing. Where can people find out more about your research and ongoing research? Um. I can send my Twitter to you guys or my academic profile. So I usually post stuff on Twitter um, and, yeah, happy for people to contact me if they want to find out more. Um, Great. Yeah. Well, we can link up to your Twitter and your um, academic profiles and yeah. so people can find out a lot more about what you guys are doing. Yep. Great plan. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks for Thank you, Thanks for listening to Cliff Dogs Podcasts. Subscribe to the cast at your favorite podcast channel. Check out the articles and member-only content at cliffharvey.com. And if you're interested in studying to become a registered health coach, accredited sports nutritionist, or registered clinical nutritionist, head over to the Holistic Performance Institute at holisticperformance.institute